That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, I'm Chelsea Handler. My dilemma is that I need a boyfriend who can ski four months out of the year, but also lives a five-hour flight away. That's what I'm looking for, a long-distance skiing boyfriend. Oh, this is a dream for me because I love matchmaking, much to my husband's chagrin, because I love trying to fix people up, and he thinks that things should happen organically. I think, what's the harm in sending two people to get a drink or on a date and just see what happens? Uh, I refer to my single friends who are on the prowl and need my matchmaking skills. Even if they haven't asked for them, I force them upon them, and I refer to them as my singles stable. And I've got some great horses in there, some prime, top-of-the-line singles talent. But this stable just got a major upgrade with Chelsea Handler. She's quite an addition, right? Okay, so this is great because all of my lovely listeners are spread out across the country, and they can get to work making this happen for her. So if you or someone you know is a good-looking guy, an excellent skier, presumably independently wealthy because – uh. I figure if you can ski four months out of the year and you live far enough away from L.A. to not bother Chelsea all the time, but can afford to fly in to see her all the time, then you probably have a lot of dough. If you are this person, hit me up. We will also accept someone that lives closer or maybe even in L.A. but must be so busy making all that damn money that you never actually get to see her or bother her or show up at her house all the time and bug her. Uh Remember, you've got to be a great skier. You can, you know, totally feel free to send in some footage to prove yourself. Um, and obviously you got to be smart and funny and handsome and talented and rich and invested in important social issues and, and all that stuff. She's a catch, right? So you have to be sending me only the best of the best, whether that's you or your friends. She's dated 50 Cent and famous hotel magnets and you got to come strong is all I'm saying. So send them to me at Sarah Spain on Twitter. We're going to make this happen. It's going to be magical. The commission has spoken. This week's guest is Chelsea Handler, comedian, author, actress, activist, and producer. You, of course, know her from Chelsea Lately on E!, her Netflix shows, Chelsea and Chelsea Does. She was previously on the Time 100 Most Influential People in the World. She also has five New York Times bestselling books, including Are You There, Vodka? It's Me, Chelsea, and My Horizontal Life, a collection of one-night stands. She's currently doing a sit-down comedy tour around the release of her new book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, and you too. And she has a podcast out now by the same name. So if you only know her from her earlier days as a sort of fast-talking, don't-give-a-bleep talk show host, this is a good chance to see a different side of her. We talked about sort of the darkness that led to her new book and about the public's reaction so far to her transition from kind of raunchy comedian to activist and thoughtful sharer of trauma. And her coping mechanisms for today's world came up all the way from big stuff like bad news to little stuff like farting neighbors. And I will give you a hint that coping involves weed. I hope you like it. Not weed, necessarily, the interview, but both is fine, if you like both. That's what she said. I am so excited to have Chelsea Handler on the podcast, someone that I have admired and uh, lived aspirationally through for years as she continues to dominate some of the spaces that we've previously only allowed men to to dominate. And uh, I have to mention, I met you in an elevator briefly in Chicago when you did a a brunch for the Karam Foundation, uh, which addresses the Syrian refugee crisis. And as a result of my husband and I going to that brunch because of you, because we wanted to see you speak, uh, he now uh, donates his time to the Syrian Community Network, works 
works with a family uh, tutors kids on the side. So I wanted to thank you for a, like kind of bringing us to that uh, space of understanding the seriousness of it. And I wanted to ask you how you first got involved in that. Oh God, that's such a nice thank you for. Uh, yes, I uh, I became friends with a woman who runs the organization, and she. How did I start? How did I meet her? Oh, you know what? I did a New York Times piece with someone, um, Leon Weaseltier, and I. There was a, had been an, a huge article in the New York Times, the cover of the New York Times that morning. This was probably about four or five years ago, and and I wanted to know how if he knew how to get in touch with anybody who ran um, organizations to help Syrian refugees because obviously the crisis is real, and at that time they were experiencing, you know. It was really getting bad and it was such a big, there was such an increased number of kids and of, of, uh, immigrants trying to get out of there. And, you know, before that, five years prior, there had been no one trying to leave Syria. So it was shocking. And, uh, he just introduced me to, uh, the woman who runs the Karam Foundation and I got involved as soon as I can financially and just showing up and, and having fundraisers. And we were able to raise a lot of money for them and I still do work with them. So it's, it was, it was a great, you know, this is a great introduction. Yeah. Do you find that people um, from the beginning when you first started to get involved with all sorts of causes that you care about, people took you and your activism seriously? Because it feels like men who are entertainers and get involved in that side of things, whether it's political or otherwise, are taken very seriously. But people often want to put women in whatever box they first were introduced to them to. And also to say, oh, well, we don't need celebrities' opinions. It's like, right. I'm sorry. So being successful in my <laughs> field of work precludes me from having an opinion on politics. I pay more taxes than most people, <laughs> and I'm happy to. I'm happy to contribute, and I want to be part of a community. So me being successful doesn't mean I don't get to say I support this person and I want I support these policies. I'm a citizen. I have every right to have an opinion. Don't be mad that I have a larger platform than you do. Yeah. And when, when you speak out about whatever issue, whether it's, you know, Syrian refugees or being an LGBTQ ally, do you get pushback from people who say we want you for your jokes and that's it? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you hear that all the time, like get back to comedy or do you stand up? Do you, like everybody's it's so degrading to say that to somebody. <laughs> go back to comedy. That's like telling LeBron James to go dribble. You right. know, like what, what? it's such an insult. That's the only thing people are good for is, you know, what you know them for. How narrow minded is that? So, uh, no, I don't really listen to that. Listen, I, I get insulted all the time. I'm used to it. I have a very thick armor, you know, which I've cultivated for a long, long time. <laughs> so I can take a lot of the punches and I don't mind them as much as other people. You know, I know that people could be more sensitive to that. That's not, I've never been my issue, sensitivity right. or vulnerability up until, you know, recently. I've been trying to, you know, get better at all of that stuff. But, uh, yeah, I have a good, good armor and, you know, I don't care that much about people who don't like me. I'm in the uh, unique position of being told to stick to sports and also get the hell out of sports. So it's great. It's a wonderful balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, sit down, shut up, stay there. Don't yeah. talk. <laughs> um, so I was listening to your podcast. You're, you're currently doing a podcast alongside the tour promoting your book, Life Will Be the Death of Me and You Too. And you're chatting with your assistant and your good friend, Mary McCormack, who's an actress. And Mary said that being friends with you and being out and about with you often involved her doing an apology tour or a sort of cleanup when you would be impatient or have a quick trigger with people that weren't entertaining or, or interesting to you. Did you think before you got into therapy that you've spent a lot of time talking about of late, did you tell yourself that those habits were just the price of being busy and successful? Did you, in your brain, say that those things were okay? 
Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh well, I'm a good person, you know. Like I'm never going to do the wrong thing. Like I, you know, I'll always, you know, I, I would never like, you know, steal or like cheat or or those things. So you kind of you kind of negotiate your own behavior. You're like, oh well,、uh, yeah, you know, like somebody needs me or somebody needs something from me, money or or me to show up. I can do all of those things. And I thought everything else is just a byproduct. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't like it, get out of my way. Like、mm-hmm. that kind of attitude. Like I, I'm doing the right thing. I'm I'm always going to do the right thing. So that can excuse kind of the little crappy stuff that you could do to people or that I was doing. You know, without having not really. You know. Taking time to listen, or taking time to sit still, or taking time to reflect—just just kind of going through life like a you know a china like a bull in a china shop—and and then and if and, and whoever couldn't keep up was weak. That kind of attitude, like oh, if you were emotional or vulnerable or crying at work, I had no patience for that. None. Like, please don't cry at work. You don't get to cry at work. You're a girl. Like, we have to be strong. Right. So that was my attitude towards everything in life, and that you know has has a domino effect, and it has ripples, and some people can't take that. You know, you, I went through life assuming everyone had the same experience that I had, and it took me a long time to wake up and realize, oh no, 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 you had a really great experience. Yes, I had loss, and I suffered my brother dying when I was a little girl, but I've never been hungry. I've never had to struggle. I've never been pulled over by a police officer and been scared for my life. Uh, I've argued with a police officer more than I've been scared of them. <laughs> That's not surprising at all.、Um, you, you actually talked about this in a recent interview that sort of it took you forty-four years to realize that white privilege exists and that you were the beneficiary of it at times. Which isn't to say that you didn't work hard and you weren't talented, but merely that your race was never an impediment to you and actually offered you chances even when you mess up. Yeah, and it wasn't that I wasn't aware of white privilege. I was certainly aware of it, but was I thinking about it? No. Was I being actionable about it? No. I was just aware of it. Like, of course, there's racism. Okay, but what's my part in it? What can I do to be a better advocate, better ally? And what I can do is to be thoughtful and to actually use all of my opportunities that I was handed. I mean, you could argue that I work hard, which I do sometimes.、Um, But I can use all of those opportunities for something impactful and something good, instead of just cashing my own check at one time. You know, repeatedly. Yes to this. Yes, I'll do a book. I'll do a tour. I'll do stand up. Yes to this show. Yes to this show. Yes to everything. And that's all about you. And I think a lot of us get stuck in our own lanes, and we don't think about us as a collective. And the thing that I learned through this year that I took off, and my, you know, my psychiatrist who I write about in my book, and you know, who's on my podcast this week's episode that just came out yesterday,、um, "Life Will Be the Death of Me" is the name of the podcast and the book. Is is what I learned was like all of this stuff kind of goes together. You know, we all have to be working for each other. Like this is a group. It's not a zero sum game. It's not you on your own. It's us with everyone, and that's when I had a, like a wake up call. That's when I was like, "Wait a second, you're fine in this life. What are you going to do for other people now?"、Mm-hmm. The book is reflective of of this period of my life. I have another documentary coming out in Netflix in in September about white privilege on that very topic. You know, about my own specifically. So those two things kind of came out of me taking a year off and really thinking about what I want to put out there. Your therapist was on your show,、um, Chelsea does, and talked about the brain in a scientific way that allowed you a tiny door 
into therapy. And you strike me as someone who's very much like me. I want everything to make sense. I've gotten really into neuroplasticity and stuff that used to sound very hippy-dippy because people are now telling me it's science. So you can change your brain. You can make yourself happier and more grateful and create bridges to access those emotions. So I talk about that a lot on this podcast because I wasn't able to find access to it as a sort of sporty tomboy type girl growing up unless it was grounded in fact. And so when he came on your show and spoke so plainly about the brain and how it connects to who you are and whatever, that's when you decided to reach out to him. Can you talk about what maybe walls you had up against the idea of therapy until he he got something triggered there for you? Yeah, I mean, I talk about this in my live shows. I'm on this book tour for my show, uh, for, for the book, which I just added a bunch of cities because I'm changing it into stand-up. But I talk oh, about... Nice. That, yeah, I'm actually, that's another great thing that came out of this. Now I want to do stand up again. You know, it's like all these things that I thought I was done with are coming back to me in a new way because I'm just in a different spot now. And I'm like, Oh, I could see that. So we just added a bunch of t- t- uh, cities in domestically and then we're going to add them internationally too. So you can get those tickets if you want at livenation.com. But. I talk about, you know, I thought therapy was navel gazing. I thought it was narcissism. I grouped therapy together with all those, you know, women in who go on silent retreats to Topanga Canyon and are <laughs> finger blasting themselves. You know, like I thought kale and avocado and therapy and meditation all were in one bucket. And I didn't want to go over to that bucket because I didn't want to become a cliche. And I have too many things in my life that are going well. What do I have a right to be angry about really? What do I really have to be upset about. And the truth of the matter is I went to a psychiatrist who helped me understand that I was had a right to be in pain, that I had a right to be upset that my brother died when I was nine years old, that I was mad at my brother for so many years for dying because I didn't, I took it as a rejection rather than an accident. I knew intellectually, but I was too young at nine years old to understand emotionally that he didn't choose to leave me, that he fell off a cliff, that it was an accident. I chose to take it as, oh, he must have gone off and found another family he liked. He just told me he was going to come back. So obviously he wasn't careful enough. If he really cared about me, he would have been more careful. He wouldn't just be so irresponsible. How could he do this? Uh, you know, you carry that narrative with you for 35 years. You're going to turn into a real tough bitch too. Right. Yeah, and, and what happened was the 2016 election sort of triggered your self-discovery and your eventual search for therapy in ways that you never would have connected to that tragedy. Right. And, uh, yeah, it, it felt dest- – I was destabilized for the first time in my adult life. Like, oh, I thought adults were supposed to take care of the political stuff. Now – so people like me could go on living this, you know, uninformed American dream, which I, I, I am living the – I am an American dream. I, I got everything I ever wanted. When I was, by the time I was 40 and I have, you know, and I have more coming, you know, it's, it's, it was a little too easy. I finally had to go, wait a second. What is going on? You know, wake up. This smells funny. Your life is really easy and you are a brat and you are behaving spoiled. And what are you going to do about it instead of just bitching? So you kind of feel unhinged. The 2016 election happens. It's not what many of us predicted or thought would happen. And when you get to your therapist, what does he tell you about why all of a sudden this connects back to when you were nine? He was saying, you know, at first, the first six sessions, I just bitched about Trump, like, and the, his family and Ivanka and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I was like, I can't believe these people. I mean, I literally was paying somebody a lot of money to, to bitch about Donald Trump. And it was, I would have paid him double, quite frankly. Uh, it was a great exchange for me because people were getting sick of hearing me bitch about it. So I needed somebody to pay. Um, 
And finally, we got real, you know, after a while. He walked in one morning and he handed me an orange that he had picked off of his tree and said, here, I I saw, I thought you might want an orange today. And for some reason in that moment, first of all, I was, I was repulsed by orange because I mean, I've had a problem with the color since the election and the fruit, quite frankly. <laughs> so I was repulsed on that level. And then I was also like, Oh God, dry fruit. I mean, and now I have to peel an orange for this guy. Like I don't want this orange. And in that moment, I felt my body be repulsed by a man handing me something that was just so sweet. And I recognized in myself that I was reacting that way. And that's when I fell apart. And that was the time that I just started bawling in therapy for the first time. And it was real. And I said things like, I have to tell you what happened the day my brother died, because he was just giving me this olive branch. And and now the orange has turned into this metaphor for my book. I throw out the oranges at the end of the shows. You know, whoever needs an orange gets an orange and to hand people oranges because I want that color back. I want the orange back. And it represents to me like healing. Yeah, it was a, it was sort of a, after you had gotten through the initial of I'm just going to talk at this person, it became this exchange of understanding that a man of any kind doing something nice for you uh, goes against what you had built within yourself. Because once your brother abandoned you, even if not by choice, it felt like I can't trust men because he had been this figure to you as the oldest of six and you were the youngest uh, to sort of um, represent stability. And when he disappeared without saying goodbye after promising he'd come back, that meant men forever have been have been like that, which seems crazy to anyone who doesn't understand that if you never address that when you're younger, it just builds and builds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just becomes a big gaping hole. You know, a wound doesn't go away. So we can tape it or band-aid it up, but it's just going to, it's going to sneak up on you. And the work is necessary. You know, I did a, I, I mean, I'm so grateful because it was such a, you know, I got so much out of therapy. I just, my whole life is different. You know, I'm happier. I'm grounded. I don't run through my life like I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't have ADD like I did when, during the election. I, you know, I'd be on my phone all the time. I didn't want to, I had all these gross habits that I was becoming a product of my environment instead of a product of myself. And I needed to like get, I needed a channel change. And, you know, my psychiatrist, I got lucked out with him because he gave me one. And that's why I've been sharing so much of this, you know, this work on my podcast and on uh, in the book because, you know, I'm not just telling my story. I'm telling a lot of people's stories. We're all in pain. We've all experienced loss. Everyone will experience grief. These are themes that you can't go through being a human being without dealing with. So it's there. You can choose to ignore it. Or you can choose to deal with it in a healthy way. And it's up to you. You know, we're in charge of our happiness. And I needed to get happy. And I wanted to be in a place after the election of not reactivity. I wanted to be in a place of action and optimism and hopefulness because the news will bring you down and the events of, you know, that are happening will bring you down. But that can't decide my mood every day. I decide my mood. Time for a quick break. And then more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Finding a new job is a lot of work. What if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? Now ZipRecruiter's technology can do that for you. Just download the ZipRecruiter job search app, let it know what kind of jobs you're interested in, and its technology starts doing the work. The ZipRecruiter app finds jobs you'll like and puts your profile in front of employers who may be looking for someone like you. If an employer likes your profile, ZipRecruiter lets you know. So if you're interested in the job, you can apply. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job search app. 
And based on a third-party survey, 7 out of 10 people who found a new job on ZipRecruiter increased their salaries. These were the results of a 2017 U.S. survey of over 500 ZipRecruiter users who got hired for a job they found on ZipRecruiter. My listeners should download the free ZipRecruiter job search app today and let the power of technology work for you. Don't wait. The sooner you download the free ZipRecruiter job search app, the sooner it can help you find a better job. That's what she said. You know, you mentioned that you throw out the oranges and and you, you, you understand that you're helping other people address their own issues by being brave and honest about this stuff. One of the things that comes with sharing tragedy or, 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 or any sort of um, dark time in a life is that people come to you with their own stories of that. So you've gone from sort of my horizontal life and are you there vodka? It's me, Chelsea. And I assume people wanting to talk to you about getting drunk and hooking up and all sorts of, you know, kind of absurdities. And now you have the burden of people's therapy stories. Um, you might not consider it a burden, but I wonder how do you reconcile the sort of difference between what you're being given, what's being brought to you every single day? Does it, is it hard for you to then stay upbeat or not be drawn down into people's darkness? Yeah, no, I have an ability now, you know, to to remain calm no matter what happens. I have an ability to not react in in situations. And, you know, the the idea of being an activist on any level is a long-term plan. You know, you it's a long game. It's not a short game. There's always going to be things that are upsetting. There always is going to be another there's going to be another shooting. It's awful. There's going to be another one. And yes, we should be reacting to those like it's the first time every time, but we already know what's happened with that. You know, um, there are a lot of things going on that are really upsetting, but being in a state of outrage is not the way to make progress. For mm. me, that wasn't working. And this is, I'm making progress now personally, you know, in community, you know, on like in a, in a, in a grander scheme, my messages are different because my evolution is authentic. You know, the thing that anyone who knows me knows it can depend on is the truth. When I was partying and having fun and sleeping around and writing books about sleeping around, I was also telling the truth about that time in my life. And now I'm di- I'm older. So I'm obviously it's inevitable to try to want to grow or become more mature. And now I'm talking about this truth. And this truth is resonating with people in a way that I never expected I would be do. You know, it's not a message I ever thought I would be giving. But it is really, uh, you know, I have a lot of, you know, gratitude for everybody's stories. I have a lot more patience for everybody's stories. So, yes, people are telling me their stories. I spend an hour a night on Instagram going through my DMs and trying to respond to every single person who tells me about loss in their life because it's so personal and we all think we're alone and we're not we're not alone. We're all in this together. We're all so similar. And so it's a great reminder of acting, you know, in concert with everyone around you and just being a great person and a person that brings light into other people's lives and a person who goes up to a stranger who's having a tough time and says, hey, do you need me? Can I help you? You know, making eye contact with every single person you're, you're, you're speaking with every day. Being present was something that I had a really hard time with if I was bored or if I was judgy about somebody or they were stupid. Now I understand that everyone's a person. I don't get to judge everybody. They're just, everyone is trying to do, you know, not everybody's trying their best and not everybody's woke, but everybody's just trying to get through. And so I have a lot more compassion for myself now, which is an, in, it's the only way to have compassion for others is to really be nice to yourself. And I was really brutal with myself for so long, which was why I was brutal with other people. You've done a great job of sort of 
I don't, I don't know if I would say reinventing yourself because you've been your authentic self throughout, but it's just it began by by expressing who you were in a totally different stage of life. So the public has acknowledged and embraced and really loves this side of you that they're getting to see post-therapy and in using your, your platform for a different kind of message. For yourself, not for the public, was there a difficulty in acknowledging and accepting a change to your identity because you were this sort of tough, fast-talking, don't give a comedian you know you're mocking meditation and kale and la bullshit how hard is it internally for you to embrace a new identity and be okay with maybe being someone that 20 years ago you would have made fun of yeah totally i would have, yeah uh, i'm fine with it i've always been fine with me you know what i mean I'm, i've always been like I'm, I'm hard on yourself but okay with it yeah like i've always been very confident you know it may have been like misplaced confidence but that's okay because it you know i've always been self-assured i believe in me so I don't have to, I don't worry about what I'm saying. All I know is my, you know, I don't worry about the content. I don't worry about how it's going to be received. I care that people respond. Of course, I have an ego, but I, all I know is I have a magnetic attraction to the truth. So I love sharing my truth. I'm here to be a communicator. For a long time, I didn't know what my purpose was. I'm like, am I, am I a talk show host? It's like, is that, that wasn't enough for me. I'm like, I don't, that's not going to fulfill me. And what am I? And what I am is a communicator. I'm just always sharing my story. And through sharing that story, so many other people can share theirs. And sometimes, that's enough. Like, I don't have to be so many things that I can just be that. And, and I'm so good with the truth. Let me do it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, it's my friend. So, uh, you know, whether it embarrasses me or not, I'll always be honest. And that's my gift. And I finally get that. This is so resonating with me because um, th- that's the thing that's always driven me. So I know who I am and I'm always going to tell the truth and I trust myself. So I'm going with my gut throughout. But sometimes what makes us great at our jobs isn't great for our personal lives, right? Are there moments that you've been able to acknowledge that the the quick wit or the snarkiness or um, even the desire to have your opinion heard all the time? I, I heard you on Dax Shepard's podcast and you both were saying like you have a mantra of like, my opinion is not always necessary here. My opinion is not always necessary here. And I have to remind myself of that as well. Do you find that you have to figure out how to balance the person that you are professionally with what you can take into personal um, relationships? Um, no, you know, I'm not. No, I think that I am. You know what I mean? There's no persona with me. It's just me. So it's not there's no separation. It's just like I, I am who I am and I've never, I've kind of always married the two. I mean, I, it would be wise to unmarry the two a little bit <laughs> because men are, you know, scared to date me. But I think, <laughs> you know, it would be nice to have like a separate, but you know, that's just not who I am. And it's a little late in the game to do that. And I'm not precious about myself. I don't take myself that seriously that I would have to actually think about that. You know, my Instagram is real. Everything that happens is, you know, real and my ridiculousness is real and my immaturity is real. And those are things, you know, that that are fun to have as part of your personality. And I embrace it now. But you can be, you know, I what I was I was lacking was the seriousness. I had the funny. I have that in spades. I'm never worried about that. I was worried about having consciousness and like being mindful of other people. That's what I was lacking. So are you 
concerned at all as you get back into stand-up, how you can balance this new you, which is supportive and empathetic and thoughtful and aware of others, with this sense of humor that you sort of began your career and established this sort of, not always mean, but certainly there was a mean spirit um, through it. Um, how do you balance that? I, it's it's easy, you know. I mean, I took a flight to Clearwater five, two weeks ago to perform there. I had a show there, and I was kind of like, "Oh no, Clearwater Scientologist!" Like, <laughs> and I'm sitting on the plane with this guy who's just a total Trump supporter and just like a real Floridian. Okay, let's leave it at Florida that. man. Yeah, yeah. And he was really physically like uh, it was an assault physically at first, and I was like, "You can't be upset about somebody's clothing or that somebody voted for Trump or that you're going to have to sit next to this person for five an hour, half hours." You're an evolved person now. Like, you know how to meditate and you know how to breathe deeply. So I started breathing deeply because I was like, how, you know, this is a new me. Two years ago, I would have been annoyed by him just from sitting down. And then he started farting and he farted eight <laughs> times on a five and a half hour flight. That flight to Clearwater from LA is long. And he farted. It was, so it not only became a physical assault or a sense, you know, a sense, a sensory assault. It was a, it was all, it was an or, it was an oratory assault. Like it was an orifice <laughs> assault. <laughs> Olfactory, I believe. Uh, yeah, olfactory. Thank you. I knew it started with an O. And I was <laughs> I was sitting there and I was like, just breathe deeply. This was before the farting. And I was like, just, you know, take your breaths and just breathe. And then he farted. And I was like, oh, oh, my God, this is happening. And then you can't breathe because then I'm just breathing like directly in from his butt air. And and I was like, this is an opportunity. You need to relax. This man is a person. He has a colon that is clearly sick. He's in trouble right now. He had he obviously went to Chipotle or wherever is whatever has food poisoning this month. He is a sick man and he could die on this plane, Chelsea. You have to be kind and generous that he's farting in your face and that you love this person. And I was like, I don't love this person. And I'm like, yes, you do. Yeah, you do. You love this person. He is he has a wife, maybe. She probably hates him, too. So just have compassion and empathy. And it, I mean, he got up to go to the bathroom and I looked around at the other passengers to see if like, or hostages, I should say, to see if everyone else was okay, too, because I was so concerned that the whole flight was dead. And I had to really take that flight and go, okay, you, you, you know, this is so stupid, but this is where I'm at. And now I can be a person that can sit next to somebody who I know voted for this person that is farting in my face and I can be pleasant and loving and kind. <laughs> so that's a victory. And you could still find humor in it. Yeah. Which is the key. Um, also, when he got up to go to the bathroom, he had these denim sweatpants on. <laughs> so that gives you a full idea of what he looked like. The, yeah. the sweatpants that look, they looked like jeans. But when he got up, I was like, oh, God, even those aren't <laughs> real jeans. And the denim part was stuck right between his two butt cheeks when he oh, got no. up to go to the bathroom from the wetness, from the, the farting. Oh. Did you ask him if he skied? You might have missed an opportunity to find him. What do you man. think? What do you think? <laughs> um, you've done a lot of things on television that would scare other people. You did hallucinogenic ayahuasca on camera, despite being warned that you would likely vomit and defecate on camera during it. Um, you have your therapist do public comedy sessions with you. Um, have you had fears that you haven't been able to bring yourself to face at work? Or do you feel like everything is on the table? Yeah, I think everything's on the table for me professionally, like what I want to do. You know, this book has been been a kind of a force of nature for me, and it's made me really redirect what I want, you know, how I want to operate. And, you know, I'll probably make this into a TV show that I'll star in, which is something I never really ever w was 
ha- recently wanted to do, but this like book a sitcom. Is so- no, like a curb or something like that. Right. I mean, I'm talking with people now about where to place that and talking to writers. But I would do that now because I'm in a different space now, you know, and the, and the, and the message is real. And it is funny how you try to get better at self-help and you, you know, you take two steps forward and you, and you find yourself on a plane fart, you know, with a guy farting next to you. And you're like, this is the biggest thing I have. This is my biggest challenge of the day. You know, how spoiled is that? But great, great. I'm at least that's getting, getting better. So it's just, you know, you can it's all these kind of conundrums of life that we're all we're all trying to get a little bit better right i mean everybody you know at some point wants to go shoot what what can i get better at so it's just kind of about examining that and you know i'm extending my stand up tour like i said because i've been enjoying it so much and i now have the fire in my belly again and i have something to say i didn't want to do stand up and i didn't want to write a new book until i had something to say and i do What's your coping mechanism? Because obviously you're you're able to at least have the platform to, to talk about things that matter to you, issues that are really important. So for some people, they they don't even have that much. But when it gets to be too much, when it's all overwhelming, because it can be, and especially now, we don't have any capacity to deal with more news than before. Our bodies are the same, but we're getting more than ever before. Um what do you do? What's your first thing that you do if you hit one of those days where you've read about a whale with too much plastic in its stomach and kids in cages and, and all of a sudden you can't anymore? You can't take any more in. I mean, I use a lot of cannabis, um, honestly, and I breathe a lot and I meditate a lot because the breathing is really something that I always heard about and was like, oh, God, what are people talking about? And now I get it. Mm. It just calms you down. It takes you into the moment and out of your head. And it, it really is about kind of spreading, you know, good vibrations. I want good vibrations. I didn't realize that you, you know, if you were in a bad mood and pretending you were in a good mood that everybody still knew you were in a bad mood. <laughs> it's transparent. And yeah. so like you really have to be in a good mood to pretend to be in a good mood. You can fake a lot of things, but that's not one of them. Um and so I do use a lot of cannabis because cannabis has been like the gateway drug for me to meditate. I, you know, when I couldn't sit still, cannabis made me sit still. Cannabis helped me get lost in life and you know, I feel passionately about cannabis. I'm coming out with my own cannabis line too in in, in the fall um because now it's a different thing for women. You know, there's so many women who are scared of cannabis and it's like this is a this is a different world now with microdosing. You don't have to be blottoed. You, it's not an edible you get at a party or a cookie that leaves you on the floor crying in a toilet for four hours. This is a different game changer. Like there's an educative component for cannabis that's been missing for so long and it has changed my life. First of all, I, I drink like I don't drink as much as I used to. I don't drink half as much as I used to. You don't need to with cannabis. And it's such a better mood shift. And it's in a, it's just a mood lifter, you know, and it's good for anxiety. It's for sleep is what I started using it for. And then I just started using it all the time because I'm like, well, wait a second. This is better for everything. Um, you know, I used to take sleeping pills. I don't take sleeping pills anymore. I, um, I, I just, I've seen the changes it's made in my friends' lives and I got, and you know, with the opioid industry and that disgusting, you know, what our government is doing to its own citizens just makes you really, you know, we have something growing out of the ground. That is, that is a coping mechanism and it's a much better one than alcohol because honestly, when you're pissed off and you're drinking, that's a hat on a hat and you don't need it. We'll be right back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. 
Tissot, the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. The Tissot Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price. And the Tissot PR100 family of watches brings together sporty and feminine details for a collection that's bold, romantic, and ideal for the modern woman. Shop Tissot at us.tisoshop.com and at select watch and jewelry stores nationwide. That's what she said. You know, uh, you mentioned also between uh, in, in one of your, I think, either podcasts or tweets that it's cannabis and Lizzo. And Lizzo is my girl. Lizzo is the uh, is the yeah. uh, intro music for my new radio show because I just want everyone to be introduced who hasn't gotten there yet. But. Yeah, my friend and Jeffrey Azoff manages Lizzo. That's my uh, I'm in I'm in the Azoff family. So, yeah, that's their client. I love Lizzo. Yeah, she's uh, she's necessary in these times as well. Absolutely. Um you know, you said in one of your interviews that 10 years ago, you went to a women's event and you didn't take it all that seriously, but it's partly how you became friends with uh, Mary McCormick. And you said, when I went to this event, I thought, don't talk about being a strong woman, just go do it. And now you view things totally differently. What is that evolution for you? I know it, it's probably partly to do with the idea of the, um, you know, finger banging retreats, but in general, the idea I think it's of finger blasting, Excuse finger me. blasting, finger I'm sorry, blasting. Yes. that's different. That's that's yes. that's when you do it to yourself. Finger banging is when someone else does it to you. Uh, no, finger blasting is can be done by another person. Too. I just want to make sure going I forward. I prefer the blast I'm, I'm, rather I'm than I'm mortified the bang. that I've had this wrong all my life. <laughs> it's mortifying. Yeah. Um, whatever kind of fingering is being done on those <laughs> retreats, is that what yeah, yeah, scared yeah. you away from being in groups of women and like talking about that stuff? Yeah, I just thought there was a lot of talk and like, you know, my, my viewpoint at that time in my life because I was so uninformed and, you know, only reeling from my own experiences, which were rarefied and easy. <laughs> you know, I didn't take, you know, I'm since I was such a had tough exterior and such a tough veneer, you know, when, when guys were shitty to me doing stand up or when they were exclusionary or anything, like I didn't care because I didn't take any of them seriously. But I didn't really, you know, like I just had this, this armor that I assumed everybody had. So when people were less sensitive or more sensitive, I should say, I had no patience for that. I was like, oh, you know, Get, get, you know, get some thicker skin or what do you give a shit about those guys? Like, I just came from my own experience so much. So with regard to women, I never really had an understanding because I'd never been in a situation where I was assaulted. Not that I know of, you know, um, I, I, or was marginalized or, 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 or felt that way. Um, I just kind of always ignored those people. And so it was, it was important for me to learn about everything that's happened. I think it was important for a lot of women who weren't as educated uh, to understand that this is a real thing and that one in three women are sexually assaulted and, and how disgusting and abusive, um, men have been for, for since the beginning of time to women. This yeah. is a real issue. Like men really don't want women to be equal. Not all men, but that's been the narrative for thousands of years. So anyone who's loath to admit that is uninformed. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I also think there is something to be said for if you decide that you are tough and that all it takes to avoid having those things happen to you is to be a certain kind of woman, it's easy to to not realize that it's not that simple. Um, and I wonder if the same sort of whatever path you took to get from, well, this never happened to me. So those who are complaining or, 
um, you know, all of the stories coming out about the Me Too movement, they must they must have brought it on themselves or there must be some reason this never happened to me. Um, I wonder if whatever path you took to understanding that better, can that be applied to men that need to understand it better? <laughs> Do you think so? Yeah. I mean, men, I think, you know, listen, it's like the world's getting browner and gayer. So everybody needs to hop on board because otherwise you're going to miss the bus. And men need to get on board with women. Men aren't waking up and understanding that they are our allies and that they need to stand up for us and advocate for us. You know, just like in the civil rights movement, white people had to stand up and fight for black people. The person who is in has the upper hand, they have to have a collective that understands that Everybody's success is important. Everybody's success means more success for everybody. There is no zero-sum game. It's not you against another. Women have been trained for so many years to think there's only room for one or two of us. Look at you. You know, you're the first female show, you know, on ESPN, right? I mean, what, how stupid is that? <laughs> I mean, that this is the first time? I mean, so you, you, you can't pretend it's not happening. All you can do is try and figure out how to be part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. Yeah, I completely agree. And so much of it is what you probably went through in terms of understanding. You knew what white privilege was, but applying it to yourself is being able to be less defensive about yourself and instead see across the community how it affects people, right? Because that's the same reason that people don't want to hear about white privilege, because then it means that they didn't earn what they have, which is not the intent of that conversation. It's merely to say that there were certain things that weren't in in the way of you to get what you earned. Yes, um, and, yes. and the same goes for anything with Me Too or sexual assault or the patriarchy or, you know, anything involving a male-female dynamics is first you have to get past the bullshit hashtag not all men, this isn't me, and then say... Am I helping anyone by my response to all of this being, I don't do this? Exactly. Great point. You know, it's really, yeah, important. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. Hey, buddy, it's not about you being like that or not. You know, I've had some friends and people in my life close to me reveal to me that they think they may have sexually assaulted a woman. And I was like, instead of freaking out and being angry... You know, not sexually assault, but you know, had it right. had a questionable Moments exchange, of consent, yes. And, yeah, yes, that. And it, to say thank you for being honest, thank you for saying that. You know, do you think that you need to talk to that person? You know, or was in college or whatever. It's like great. That's these are the conversations we need to have. Everyone makes mistakes. We've all made mistakes. We all fuck up all the time. The only way to be accountable is to say, hey. I fucked up. Well, how do I get better at this? Ask questions. Ask uncomfortable questions. You know, everyone is so scared about po- political correctness that they don't feel like they can have honest conversations. And that, and we do need to be politically correct, but we also have to figure out how to be better advocates to people and how to have these conversations. I like that. I like being uncomfortable. I like learning. I like having my opinion changed. I want to grow. I don't want these to be my opinions forever. Show me the way. You know, we all have to be more open about that. And we need men to just stop being defensive and start being, you know, start getting into the conversation and just go, yeah, we hear you. I hear you. I hear you. God, this is so informative. God, we've been overstepping. Thank you for this new information. Now we're going to be in a different world instead of saying we can't even make any jokes anymore. Yeah, you can. (laughs) Yeah, you can. There's plenty to make jokes about. If you can't, then maybe you're not that funny. Right. <laughs> That's all you have to make jokes about. Um, so what's next for you? You mentioned you're extending the tour and it will stop being sit down interviews and become stand up. You're working on potentially. A yeah, series. I just added Nashville, Westbury, Long Island, New Orleans, nice. like all these same St. Louis. Uh, I'm going to do that through the summer. I'll probably do some international dates as well, probably and film a special. And then I will. um 
I don't know what I'll do. I'll I, I have to figure that out. I don't really. I'm not a big planner. I just kind of you know I'm producing a lot of television shows. I've optioned a lot of books. I have a production company, so I do a lot of that stuff, which keeps me busy. And then I think I'll probably turn this book into a TV show and play myself. Yeah. That's exciting. That's a lot of, that's a lot of stuff. You'll need a lot of cannabis to just ease your yeah, way through. Yeah. I've got to launch my cannabis line. That's a priority. That's for that. That'll come out right before the holidays, uh, in, 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 in Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving time. So we can help people cope with their families over the holidays. Right. Good timing. And, and yeah. green apple Jolly Rancher flavor is the first one. Uh, not necessarily. We're still nailing down, um, that we're going to definitely have the orange theme in my pot line because again, you know, handing cannabis to somebody in my mind is handing an orange to them. So we're going to have to try and integrate those two. You know, I'm just, I'm just taking the book and making everything that I can good out of it because I want everything to be kind of like a sister. You know, I want to hand, I want to be a sister to everyone and say, Hey, you can depend on me. This is going to help you with anxiety or this is a book to read to help you with therapy and this is what I did. Everything should come from the place of being a sister as a woman. And, you know, I got that message loud and clear now, so I intend to use it. I love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody ex- uh, everybody does, but nobody expects. Expect what? The kind of Spanish Inquisition. That's right. It's time for the Spanish Inquisition, which is brought to you by Tissot. Tissot, the official watch of the NBA. Shop at us.tissotshop.com. Inquisition. That's right. The Spanish Inquisition, the 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Uh, George Ezra's Top 40. Ooh, nice. Top tracks. Uh, num- Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Spotify, I guess. I don't know. So, uh, we'll give you a Spotify. No one's ever been that smart before. Very smart of you. That's great. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has most contributed to your success? Uh, my instinctiveness. Hmm. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Shoot. My biggest failure? This is the hardest guess, one because everyone I have is I guess is empathy. <laughs> I mean, it's not a failure because it's not really – but I guess I would say my biggest – yeah, not having empathy was my biggest failure. And you found it with your therapy? Yeah, I found it. That's good. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes, I got my Sadiqa. This girl in high school bit me on my hand. I still have a scar Ooh. from it. And I, yeah, I got into two fights, one with a girl named Glenn and one with a girl named Sadiqa. We were usually delivering the blows or, or administering and taking Glenn, them. I got her good and Sadiqa got me good. So I got what I got. <laughs> <laughs> I got what I gave. Uh, Sadiqa five. was black. So I really, she was, she I never was, could have guessed. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Glenn, the girl, I could take down a white girl, but I, I was couldn't, say, I mean, I couldn't you, take you down a black shouldn't. girl. I was like, oh, no, no, I'm out of my league here. I mean, in general, you probably shouldn't fight a girl named Glenn. It just sounds like I'm picturing I'm picturing someone that doesn't need to get punched in the face to add to all the other stuff she's got. Right, through. right. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, God, I don't know. Maybe Barack Obama. I get that one a lot. Yeah, I, I guess that that's pretty obvious. Yeah, I mean it's a good answer though. That's why a lot of people uh a lot of people say it. Um number 6, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh god, all the time. I mean humiliation after humiliation with me. <laughs> I get embarrassed quite frequently. Um less now cuz I kind of don't say everything I think. Uh I definitely got I definitely had a guy find underwear of mine after I'd hooked up with him that was not underwear I needed to be seen. Oh, let's leave it at that. Right, that's unfortunate. Okay. 
Yeah. yeah. That'll happen. It was uh, also s- in his dog's mouth. So oh, that no. was a double whammy. Oh. That's in one of my books, actually, too. So I've shared that humiliation already. Yeah. I just realized. <laughs> I was like, where do I know that story from? Oh, yeah, you wrote about it. <laughs> my own book. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, Just my spreading of goodness. So you're still working on it. You're You're there, but you want to do it even more. Yeah, I want to be like, you know... I want to really spread it around as much it, like you, you have a little tiny people that you reach, you know, you have your group right. of people and then you have your community and then you have the world and it's like, okay, I'm, I'm getting into the community part and I need to get into the world part. So you want it to be like mother Teresa style where like comedian is like the fifth thing on your. On no, your I don't want to be mother Teresa. I'm not mother <laughs> Teresa, but I have my own brand of mother Teresa yes. and I want to spread that. And it involves. Cannabis. It doesn't involve and, India. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't involve India. <laughs> um, no or silent eight. retreats. I'm right, not there exactly, yet. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, if you could play commissioner for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Oh, God. I think there would have to be a minimum number of women on the court. Oof. You know, representing ESPN, representing the teams, representing everything. It's, there's got to be equity. I love that. That's a great one. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Equality, I meant to say, not equity. Sorry. Uh, th- the most scared I've ever been? Snakes. I'm sca- I'm deathly afraid of snakes. I wonder if I am. Yeah, I think I still am. I mean, with all the therapy <laughs> I've done, I haven't seen one in a while. And I think my reaction to snakes has always been so heightened and so crazy that I'm curious to see, not curious enough to like go seek out a snake, but I'm curious to see that maybe with all this work I've done, I would be a little bit calmer if I did run into a snake. Yeah, you could deep breathing your way through it like the farting guy. I really have a problem with snakes. I have a real, like, I could go into shock if I see one. Oh, rogue. no. Yeah, okay. yeah. I have, like, yeah. I've had a couple situations. Uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Generous, um, funny, and smart. Mm, those are good ones. Bonus listener question. If you could be really great at one thing for one day, like the very best at it for one day, what would it be? Kite surfing. What? Kite surfing. Don't you want to kite surf? I mean, I, I mean, sure, would but love all the to be able to do that. I love to fly. Okay. All right. That's random. I'm not judging your response. It's just no, all nor, the things in why the would you? I mean, how could you judge kite surfing? Like, what do you look down at that? I mean, <laughs> look sideways. I mean, considering you want to get beyond the community into the world, there are things you could be the very best at, even for just Oh, a I day. thought you meant a hobby. I thought you meant, see, I'm still selfish. I can only think about what I want. I'm like, yeah, whoopsie. It's too late. It's kite <laughs> yeah. surfing is the answer. Per- perfect. Forever. I'll stick with it. I'll stick with my instincts as usual. Uh, and finally, who would you recommend I have on this podcast? Uh, God, a female, I, I mean, oh God, there's so many feet, uh, Abby Wambach. Oh yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah. And Glennon Doyle, she interviewed me at my show in Clearwater actually after I got farted on and she, <laughs> Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach are f***ing awesome. I love yeah. them both so much. I love Glennon Doyle. Like I feel like she is my sister and she is, she's everyone's sister too. Yeah. I, I know Abby, so now I'm just going to tell her that because you said I had to have them on, then I have to get them as a package deal. So I appreciate your endorsement. That'll really help me out with getting that one. I also need to get your uh, psychiatrist on the podcast because I want to pick his brain about the difference between your brain and your personality, which I cannot get past. Isn't that a fascinating, oh. like, trying yeah. to figure that out? Yeah. Well, your brain is, you know, a lot of your brain is your ego and your personality, 
needs to be aligned with like you know you use your personality for for what you're supposed to be doing in this world, like so the brain like a lot of the thoughts that we have and the 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 you know the our history and our lives are all related to our ego. You know, it's all like, you know, I have to always say now, okay, is this my ego or is this the right thing to do? Like, am I doing this for the optics? Am I doing this for dinner? And almost all of the time, it's ego. So you ha- like, I want, I don't want to do stuff for that. You know, we all want to do well in our careers and everything. And we need a certain amount of followers and blah, blah, blah to have a successful career. But uh, I am making changes in my life in a major way about why I do things and and not to operate only from the ego because then you really are going to be in a deficit. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Your latest podcast with your psychiatrist, um, he gets into a lot of the detail about where stuff is in the brain and, and how we use it and, and all that stuff. It's a really great lesson for anybody who's interested in this stuff, which uh, a lot of people who listen to my pod know I get into that. So thank you so much, Chelsea. This was so great. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and congrats on all the success around the new book. Uh, hopefully I can make it to, uh, I, I don't think you're coming back to Chicago as of now, but if you decide to really, no, but you tour, know what, maybe I'll come back. If I do a special, I think I'll probably come back to Chicago and do it. Maybe, maybe because that's where I filmed my last one. Um, but yeah, I, I love Chicago. It's my favorite place to perform. It's my favorite city. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Chelsea. Thank you. Take care. Time for a quick break. And then more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, grief, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient. You can get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time, no additional charge. Best of all, it's truly an affordable option, and my listeners get 10% off their first month just by using the discount code SPAIN. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com slash Spain. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. BetterHelp.com slash Spain. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. Today, robocalls. You know, you pick up and it's an automated voice on the other end. Sometimes they even do that fake like, hello? Hello? <laughs> oh, hi. I'm like, shut up, bitch. I know you're a computer. First of all, why is anyone calling me? The only phone calls I get these days that shouldn't just be text messages are from my lovely parents or long-distance friends who are calling to catch up on life. Or maybe Walgreens telling me a prescription is ready or some sort of doctor slash dentist slash hair salon slash nail salon confirming an appointment of some kind. Although even those are fewer and farther between because now there's all sorts of automated text messages that confirm those appointments. Or, of course, emergencies, right? That's when someone usually calls you and you pick up, what's wrong, are you lost, locked out, in trouble, got in an accident, etc. So if someone is actually calling me instead of texting, I assume it's important and that I should pick up. 99 times out of 10 these days, it's not, and I shouldn't. And these jerks use tricks to get you to pick up like this neighbor spoofing thing where it looks like a call from a local number near where you live or work or travel. Oh, it's a Chicago number. Maybe I should pick up. It might be FedEx about a missed package delivery. Nope. Robocall for student debt forgiveness. And I don't have student debt. 
Oh, a Bristol, Connecticut number. It might be a producer calling about a sports center hit. Nope. This is your credit card provider. Oh, really? Not Visa? Not Chase? Just credit card provider? Get the f- out of here. Miami number. Oh, no, I might have left something in my hotel room last week. Nope. Robocall in Chinese. An hour later, Chinese robocall again. Three hours later, Chinese robocall again. The next day, I've qualified for a free medical alert system. Four hours later, it's the IRS calling with urgent information about a lawsuit that I'm cited in. Sure. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because they're only getting worse. They are not slowing down. In fact, John Oliver did a thing about this on his show, and these increased by 57% last year, and they're likely to increase even more. I already ignore almost every phone call I get, and if these get more frequent, I'm just going to stop making phone calls altogether and stop receiving them. I'm just going to use my phone for what it really is, which is a podcast-playing, TV show-airing, box-score-providing device that also allows me to text my husband, hey, what should we order for dinner tonight? I'm really down for whatever you want. When I really mean, I'm going to turn down everything you suggest, and we're going to order from Thai Village for the fourth time this week, because that's what I want. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Robocalls, the absolute worst. Phones, things that you use to order Thai food on with an app and never answer again. There. I fixed it. Hey, if you like this show, you might like my nightly radio show, Spain and Company. If you can't catch it live, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on the ESPN app, National ESPN Radio, or Sirius XM Channel 80, you can always listen to select segments posted to the Twitter feed at Spain and Company. So be sure to subscribe and follow. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave your dilemmas in the review for me to answer. Listener dilemmas are brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 